I may ask you a question at the opening of our message today. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Did anyone resonate with a person in that video? Maybe you just had a fight with your spouse or children or friend last night or maybe even this morning. Perhaps the fight's been going on for days or weeks and you may be saying, I can't even remember how it started. Have you ever had that experience? You know, it's late at night, someone says something, a conflict starts, and then two hours later at 1 a.m., you are still fighting and you don't even know what you're fighting about. As the fight goes along, maybe you even said or thought some of the things you just saw in that video. Why can't they listen? I mean, you think, I've been stating the reason I'm upset over and over again for the last hour, and they just don't get it. I don't know if I can forgive them. I mean, they hurt me so badly that it may be irreparable, or maybe you said something so mean that the other person just can't believe that you would say something that unkind to them. And so you think, this is your fault. You are the problem. You know, see, when we fight, we always think the other person is at fault, right? I mean, that's the reason we're fighting, isn't it? To prove that we're right. And so we think the point is that we are right. Some of us get into a fight, and before the other person can, can speak, we're pulling out the proof. And when they resist and try to point out our faults, we double down and show them the spreadsheets of data that proves that we are right. So I ask you again, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Because when those fights and quarrels break out, how does that usually go for you? What kind of fighter are you? I'll bet you play one of these roles when it comes to conflict. Maybe you're the peacemaker. Some of us, as soon as conflict starts, are looking for a way to end it as quickly as possible. We wonder why we're fighting and we're thinking, can't we just stop making it uncomfortable in here? Let's just, let's just be peaceful. Some of us are sulkers. As soon as we don't get our own way, we go into the corner and we passive-aggressively withdraw as we give everyone a dirty look. Someone tells us we look upset and our response is, no, I'm fine, even though it's a lie. Some of you can resonate with that. Maybe you're a stuffer. You may have grown up in a stuffer family where everyone kept their feelings inside until they boiled over, like this guy here. And then one day, everyone gets in a fight, they shout at each other, and then nobody talks to each other for five years when the next fight ensues. Where are my lawyers in the room? Yeah, you are the one who loves to argue a point. And you relish a good fight because you know you can win. In fact, if you're not in the legal profession, you probably missed your calling. As soon as fights break out, you have 10 reasons as to why you are right in your back pocket. Maybe you've even been taking notes and you whip out your legal pad with your, with your copious notes you've taken. You're probably the last one sitting in the room once the fight is done. Or you go to the bathroom and continue arguing your point to yourself in the mirror. Finally, there's the screamers. Yeah, maybe you came from a family that shared all their feelings, and the only way you know how to fight was to scream at one another. But then you married, or you became friends with someone who is a peacemaker, and they're like, whoa, calm down, I just need to get out of the room. Yeah, what kind of fighter are you? Now, here's what I want to impress upon our hearts at the beginning of our time today, and it's this. When you win an argument, especially with your family or your church family, you don't really win. And you say, what, Pastor Bob, what are you talking about? Well, I'm saying that if you win an argument, but the relationship is still filled with hurt and brokenness, it doesn't really matter if you won the argument. I mean, you know this, right? Deep down in your hearts, husbands, maybe you had a fight with your wife, 
And, she disagreed, and when you disagreed, you presented your case in a way that you, sh- you thought you should have received an A from your, your college debate professor. In fact, you wonder why your wife didn't give you an A and automatically say, yes, you're right. I mean, your arguments were sound. You may have brought out um, a PowerPoint presentation even with bar graphs and showed why you were right. But then you were really confused when she left the room angry. All of a sudden, winning doesn't feel very good. Moms, maybe you did the same thing to your teenage child, but then they went and locked themselves in the room. And you think, man, my case was airtight. Teenagers, maybe you won a texting argument with one of your friends, but then you don't get why they haven't texted or snapped you back in a week. I mean, you had a streak going. You see, when you win an argument, oftentimes you don't really win. And when it comes to our church family, the same principle applies. You see, we can argue and advocate for the preferences we have, but even when our presentation is convincing, at least in our minds, when we think we've won, we haven't. Because the other person doesn't feel cared for. And barriers start to go up. Disunity happens. In fact, my friend Kenny Baker puts it this way. He says, the most stressful times in life is when we are fighting for ourselves at the expense of the relationship. In fact, this breaks the heart of God. Look at what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17. To the Father, he prays, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. That Jesus prays that his followers would be one that we would be unified. He prays that we would not be about winning arguments, but that we would be about loving people well. Because he knows arguments that lead to destructive conflict shatter the community God wants to establish. And this is what James will talk to us about in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12 of his letter today. And so I invite you to join me there. Arguments that lead to destructive conflict divide God's people, James will tell us, and he will say again, this should not be. Now, before we dive into God's word today, would you please pray with me? Father God, we come before you, and we pray, as Jesus himself prayed, that we would be one. Father, I pray this morning that you would expose the deep recesses of our hearts, Lord, where our selfishness and and pride live, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would bring conviction, that your words would come out today as your word is exposed. And I pray that we would leave this place changed and transformed for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, let me say at the outset, I don't think all conflict is bad. In fact, I think there is a healthy conflict that we should pursue that actually refines us and makes us more mature Christ followers. I think healthy conflict refines us and brings us closer together, but destructive conflict hurts us and tears us apart, and it's the latter that James is discussing in our passage today. Now, if you were not here last week, let's remind ourselves how James ended chapter 3 by talking about the character of the wisdom from heaven. He says this, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And he says this is the type of people that we need to be. We need to be wisdom from above people. You see, after spending much of the passage last week talking about the destructive elements of worldly wisdom, James says that the wisdom from above is the solution to our speech problems. 
Notice one of the key elements of the wisdom from above is peace. In fact, the next verse, verse 18, tells us another effect of this wisdom. It's that we will become peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. You see, if we live by the wisdom from above, we will be peacemakers. The wisdom from above has the ability to shape our communities into places of peace. But if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, James asked the church immediately why they are fighting, which assumes they are. Wow, look look what he writes. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? So James, James is a practical letter, but in particular with this passage, he's right up front. He asks a pointed question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And immediately he answers that question. It's your desires. In other words, these fights and quarrels flow from our hearts and the desires that battle within us, which reveals the first and very insightful point that James is going to make today. It's that conflict begins inside, not outside us. James tells us the cause of our conflicts is the enemy within. Now, I confess, this is very counterintuitive to most of us because we think conflict is always the other person's fault, right? It's not us. I mean, James says conflict, though, begins inside, not outside us. James says conflict begins with our selfish desires. Now, these quarrels most likely were uh, related to verbal sparring and criticism, which is why he links all of this back to the tongue in chapter 3. And so as we discussed last week, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so the source of these quarrels is the heart the desires that battle within us. Now, the Greek word for desires is here is where we get the English word hedonism, which had the meaning of a disordered pleasure or enjoyment. And so when he asks what causes fights and quarrels among you, it is our disordered hearts that, def- that find pleasure in everything but God. Do you doubt this? I mean, I would suggest that some of us find pleasure in criticizing others. Perhaps we enjoy watching other people fail because it gives us power over them. These things aren't on the surface. We actually have to take a deep dive to really examine the motives of our hearts. Or let me put it another way. When we find ourselves in an argument, what is the first thing that we do oftentimes? The first thing we often do is start blaming the other person. We point our finger at everyone else and start telling them why they are wrong But we seldom stop and point the finger at ourselves. In fact, a wise person once said, when I point one finger at somebody else, there's three fingers pointing back at me. You see, friends, the reason we we fight and quarrel is because we're not getting our own way. We're not getting what we want. And so our desires are not being met, and we fight. We fight for ourselves and our desires. And when we do this, we need to look at ourselves and ask, are my desires in line with God's desires? James is saying we fight for ourselves. And moreover, when we don't get what we want, look at what happens in verse 2. He says, you desire but do not have, so you kill. Now you say, whoa, hold on a second. You don't get what you want, so you kill? James, I am not killing anyone. Now, relax. James is not saying that people were literally going around and killing one another. He is saying, though, that we may hurt people to get what we want. 
Now, there's a different Greek word for desires in this verse, and it indicates an unhealthy craving to secure something that is not yours. So let me ask you, what lengths would you go or have you gone to get something that is not yours? Now, perhaps you wouldn't literally kill somebody, but would you kill their career and reputation by spreading lethal gossip about them? You may not physically kill someone, but would you mortally wound another person's heart with your words for your gain? Our hearts are disordered. James tells us again where quarreling comes from at the end of verse 2. He says, but you, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you, far, you quarrel and fight. You covet, but you can't get what you want. Now again, James is hearkening back to that idea of bitter envy and selfish ambition in chapter 3, which were linked to worldly wisdom. And so these selfish desires produce disorder within the church. And James is further describing the battle that Christians face within our hearts, where our selfish passions conflict with our desire to serve Christ and our neighbor, and oftentimes serving ourselves wins. Here's the key principle. Our internal conflict is what leads to external conflict. Conflict begins inside, not outside. So consider this. What do you covet? What are you jealous of? And ask yourself this diagnostic question. What are you willing to fight for? Because our desires are exposed in what we fight for. And they're also revealed in our prayers. Look at what James says. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James says you don't get what you want because you don't ask God. And the reason, the reason you don't ask God is because your motives would be revealed as selfish. You see, our prayers reveal our self-centered nature. Think about it this way. If God answered every one of our prayers from the last month, if you took a survey of everything you prayed for, would anyone's life change but your own? If we surveyed our prayers over the last month and we asked the question, would anyone's life change but our own, what would be the answer? Because that's a great question. Do we need to admit that we pray selfishly? Who are we fighting for when we pray, ourselves or others? Are our prayers guided by the royal law that James mentioned in chapter 2, love our neighbors as ourselves? Or are our prayers guided by worldly wisdom? Now, if you skip down to chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, James returns to the theme of neighbor love and our tongue. And these verses reveal something very convicting about our hearts. Here's what he writes. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge and the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Do you see what James is doing here? Yes, he tells us that we should not slander one another. Yes, we should tame our tongues. Yes. But what is he really saying in these verses? He says that that when you speak against a brother or sister, you judge the law. And when you judge the law, which in this context means the the law of neighbor love from Leviticus 19, it means that you don't think the law matters. When you judge the law, 
It means you think you know more than the lawgiver. And he says, friends, don't put yourself above the law. In fact, he rebukes us in verse 12 by saying, there is only one lawgiver and judge, and he is not you. See, what James is saying here is that we often put ourselves in the position of God. We functionally tell God that he is wrong, and we don't need to follow his commands. We put ourselves in God's position because we think we know the best. After all, was that not the first sin in Genesis 3? When the serpent came to Adam and Eve, how did he tempt them? He said, you should eat this fruit so you can be like who? Like God. Your eyes will be open, he says. You will no longer be inferior to him. And so we became, as Paul Tripp notes, glory thieves. We are always trying to steal God's glory for ourselves. We are trying to convince ourselves that we know better than God. And by doing so, we judge the lawgiver himself. We rise above other people and look down upon them. Why? Because we want to feel superior to them. We want to win an argument because we want the other person to know just how smart we are, and when we do so, we expose ourselves as being unloving. Have you ever thought about the fact that pride always compares? In fact, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or great-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer, or better looking than others. See, when we are proud, we compare ourselves with another person, and there's only two possible outcomes. We, we can believe, and we come out on top, and we feel even more pride, or we can believe we come out on the bottom, and we can feel envy. And envy is actually pride that is wounded. And so I ask again, what causes fights and quarrels among you? I want to suggest that it is are dysfunctional relationships that flow from dysfunctional hearts. As the hymn writer so aptly puts it, our hearts are prone to wander, Lord. I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and our prayers need to be this, Lord, here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. See, a dysfunctional heart is one that is not submitted to God, as we will see is one where we try to be God, and it causes dysfunctional relationships. It displays itself in our fights and quarrels where our actions show our desires because our actions always speak louder than our words. Let me give you an illustration. Pastor Andy Stanley often discusses his experience with marriage counseling. And so he says, I used to do a lot of marriage counseling, and often one spouse would come into the office and start ranting and raving, oh, my husband does this, or my wife, she just will never do that. And on and on it would go, he says. And I would sit there thinking, well, this counseling isn't going to be very effective because the person who apparently needs to change isn't in the room. So he says, I would pull out a pad of paper, I would draw a circle on it, and I would say, this pie represents all the chaos in your marriage. Now, 100% of the blame is in that pie because that's where all the chaos is. And he says, I would give them a pen and I would say, now I want you to draw a slice of the pie that you you think represents your responsibility in the chaos. The piece that the client would draw, he said, was never very big. But I would say, okay, so 
Why don't you and I talk about this? Let's talk about this piece that is your responsibility. Let's talk about your slice. And he said, you know what? It never worked because I could never get anybody to stay on their slice of the pie. He, and at the end of the conversation, he always offered this challenge. He says, as you go home and experience relational conflict at work or home or with your friends, any sort of conflict, big or small, stop and think and ask yourself, what is your slice of the pie? Ask, have I taken responsibility for my life really, or am I enjoying the blame game so much that it has allowed me to ignore what I am ultimately responsible for? Now, some of you hear that and say, wow, that's really, really helpful. I'm going to go home and do that. But I guarantee you that 99% of you will not. And do you know why? Because we want to put ourselves in God's position. Because we want to judge the other person. We want to be right. And when we admit we are part of the conflict, we have to admit that we aren't right. You see, you see, we always want to put ourselves in God's position. And other people suffer because our dysfunctional hearts have to get their own way. And so let me ask you, who in your family or your church family is suffering because you are not getting your own way? And the next time we get into a fight, can we pause and ask ourselves, God, what are you trying to do in me before I try to squeeze my desires out of others? Now I know, listen here, some of you are saying right now, objection, objection, Pastor Bob, you don't understand my situation. You don't know how bad he is or she is or they are. My conflicts do not begin with me. All right, okay. I understand exactly what you're saying because I do the same thing. You see, in my mind, it is never my fault. Or at least the other person is more at fault than me. But I want to invite you this morning to consider this. What if it is your fault? What if the reason you're in so many conflicts is because of you? What's the common denominator? And I'm willing to bet that when you actually focus on your slice of the pie, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Because you see, I think our pride masks our part in the conflict. I think you'll actually see the conflict begins inside our hearts and not outside of us. But it doesn't end there. In fact, our desires within us cause a disordering of our hearts, and it leads us to abandon our first love. And that's the second point. Conflict occurs because we abandon our first love. Because here's the reality we all have to face. Our first conflict is always with God himself. Our hearts are disordered, and we think that we want his job. And so we worship other gods. We pursue other, other lovers. So buckle up, because James is about to get real. Let's look back at verse 4. He says this, You adulterous people! Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Ouch, my feelings just got hurt. God, why did you say that? Now, James says here, I don't care. You need to hear this, church. Literally, he is saying that we are adulteresses and adulterers. This is who we are. And every time we fight to prove that we are right, every time we try to justify our actions to save face, every time we say unkind words, we are worshiping our pride and not our God. We are unfaithful to the God who loved us and sacrificed himself for us. You see, the charge in this passage is spiritual adultery. 
And James is saying that as Christians, we are married to Jesus, but we run after other gods, and it should break our hearts just like it breaks God's heart. You see, this idea would take the original readers back to the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 3 of his writing, he says this, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. And if you just read the book of Judges, you will see how this plays itself out. Do you catch what James is doing here? James is summarizing what the entire Bible says about God's fallen relationship to humanity. He's telling us that we are unfaithful to him. And so James gets more specific in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So James goes back to that adultery image, and he he moves beyond that to include friendship. Friendship with the world is enmity against God. Did you hear that? That if we choose to be a friend of the world, we become an enemy of God. And what does that mean? Well, the word for friendship in this section is the root word phileo, which is where we get our English word Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. Congratulations to all you Eagles fans out there. I know you are still celebrating. But it bears mentioning that friendship in antiquity was usually taken far more seriously than we do today. In fact, we're talking about something that goes far beyond Facebook friendship, where we we spy on other people, we we hit the like button every once in a while, and then we call them a friend. I heard somebody say that Facebook friends are like post-it notes, lightly adhesive. In antiquity, friendship was viewed as a lifelong pact between people who shared values and loyalties. Friendship in James' day, as Craig Blomberg notes, indicated identification to and relationship with something or something. And so to be friends with the world meant to identify with its standards and priorities. And so you might see how friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. To be a friend with the world means we align ourselves with, it, with the world and its standards and priorities over God. And so when we choose friendship with the world, we abandon the one who we loved first and who loved us first. Now think about it this way. Just imagine if you are a high school uh, boy or girl. Some of you don't have to imagine very much because you're there. But if you are not, take yourself back there and just imagine what is the most important thing for you when you're in high school? Your friends. And when you have a group of friends, or even one friend who cares about you, you don't want to lose that. You want to hang out with that person all the time. But then, your friend starts dating someone, and you don't get to see them as much. And how does that make you feel? You're jealous. You are jealous because you are losing the deep connection you once had with that friend, and you are losing it to someone else, and you're jealous And in the same way, God is jealous for us in our hearts. He is jealous for us. Look at what James writes next. Verse 5, he says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? Do you catch what James is saying here? Here he is telling us about the Bible, what the Bible says about humanity's relationship with God. 
You see, Exodus 25 tells us that God is a jealous God because he wants our hearts and in our worship, but the whole biblical narrative is about how we run away from God and get as far away from him as we possibly can, and yet God comes for us. We abandon our first love over and over and over again, and yet look at what God does. He gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. Because you see, in the greatest act of love, in the history of the world, Jesus Christ came for us when we were his enemies. Jesus Christ came to earth to die a brutal death on a cross so that we could have life. And now, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our imperfect hearts. He sees the perfect blood of his son who made atonement for us. Amen. But as a loving father, he still longs for us to return to him. And just like the prodigal son in Luke 15, he greets us with open arms at the foot of the cross and says, welcome home. That is the gospel. And it should bring us to our knees. And if it doesn't, James addresses the reason next in verse, left part of verse 6. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives favor to the humble. Because you see, the reason we don't run back to God, the reason we don't admit our sins, the reason we don't confess, the reason we always want to place ourselves in God's position is because of pride. James is saying something very germane to our topic today, that conflict always, always, always has a deeper root, and it's our pride. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Pride. Why can't you admit that you are wrong? Pride. Why can't you receive correction, or why do you always need to offer correction? Pride. It is antithetical to the wisdom from above, which is grounded in humility. And so James quotes from Proverbs 3.34 here and makes a bold claim. God is not on the side of the proud. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, but I want to be on God's side. South African theologian Andrew Murray says this, Pride is the root of every sin, and humility is the root of every virtue. And the reality is we are often not on God's side. We choose friendship with the world. We are in conflict with God, and we start fights with others. Why? Because we fail to recognize that we are forever in God's debt, which will always humble us. And when we recognize we are forever in God's debt, our lives are one big thank you note. To recognize this is to live, to not recognize this is to live a self-focused, prideful life. Now before we start going around and pointing fingers and telling others how prideful they are, because that's usually what happens, hey man, I got a great sermon for you, I want to suggest we always need to look at ourselves first. Church, we need to look at ourselves And before we start pointing fingers at those outside the church, because we are guilty. In fact, Jonathan Edwards wrote, the thing that kills revival more than anything else is spiritual pride. Can we go home tonight, look in the mirror, and ask, am I spiritually prideful? The antidote, of course, is humility. Edwards identifies six markers of spiritual pride and contrasts them with marks of humility. Here is a summarized version from Tim Keller with some application. He said, pride makes you more aware of others' faults than you are of your own. 
but humility makes you more aware of your own faults than those of others. Secondly, people who speak, people, prideful people speak of others' faults with an air of contempt. Humble people speak of others' faults with a grief and mercy. Pride leads you to quickly separate from people who have criticized you or you have criticized. And humility leads you to stick with people even in difficult relationships. Number four, a proud person is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief because a proud person cannot distinguish between what is major and what is minor because everything is important to the proud person. Number five, when a proud person confronts someone, they want to win. Or they don't confront because they don't like confrontation. Humble people confront necessarily. Number six, a proud person is often unhappy and sorry for themselves because they are so sure how life ought to go and they think they deserve an easy life. But the humble person does not engage in self-pity because they recognize everything they have is because of God's grace. Now, church, when we go home tonight, I invite you to look in the mirror, take an inventory of your life, and ask, are we humble or are we prideful? Because this was incredibly convicting to me this week as I examined my own heart. God says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, humble people are slow to speak of other people's faults, and when they do speak, they're very gentle and respectful and kind. They always stick with people through hard relationships. They are flexible, not dogmatic. They are afraid of confronting, but when they do, they are persuasive because they are not out to win, they are out to heal. They are not self-pitying, and they are never grumbling or complaining about life. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, do we look more like humble people or like prideful people? Are we spiritually proud, or are we humble people who've received grace? And if we are honest, I think when we look at our heart, we'll find that all of us are prideful people who need to be humbled. And pride is the root cause of all destructive conflicts. It begins in our hearts. And that takes us to our last point. Our disordered hearts are a dragon that must be slain. Our disordered hearts are a dragon that must be slain. In fact, if you're fans of the Hobbit trilogy, which really should have been one movie, but it turned into three, Um, You may remember the final movie finally shows the great dragon Smaug descending upon a village and breathing fire upon it. Why? Because he had a conflict with those people. And in the same way, our hearts cause conflict, which quickly gets out of control. It's, It's like a dragon that needs to be destroyed, and we're fighting a dragon. We need to slay it. How? How do we slay it? Well, James concludes by telling us, verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God. How do you slay the dragon? Submit to God. Well, now the word submit is a very loaded term within our culture, but in this context, it gives an image of ordering our lives under God's authority and will, that he's the king and we are the subjects. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, it's a disordered heart that is not submitting to God. You have given something else, some other God, authority over your heart. He says, here, submit to God, but don't stop there. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, once you've submitted to God, you also need to resist the devil. And here's where the fight gets real. Because usually when we resist the devil, life gets harder. He ramps up his attack. 
He's like a velociraptor trying to find our weaknesses and take us out. And interestingly enough, do you remember the devil's first sin? It was pride, and he wants us to follow in his footsteps. I heard someone once make this observation about temptation. They said, temptation gets even more intense the longer we resist. And when we resist, the devil's influence and temptation gets worse and worse. And then if we give in, we feel relieved. As if he flees when I succumb, not when I resist. And many of us can probably resonate with that. But I would suggest the reason we feel relief is because the devil has won the battle and he doesn't need to attack anymore. See, James says that this will not be easy. The devil will still attack our hearts and minds, but hearts submitted to God will stand strong when the attacks come. We can be strong because James tells us to come close to our God. Verse 8, he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, the phrase come near to God here probably means coming near to God for a covenant renewal after straying. It's the image of a marriage vow renewal ceremony with our first love, Jesus Christ. And after calling us adulterers in verse 4, James is now saying, come and renew your covenant with God. Even though you have been unfaithful, he is still faithful. God is saying, come back to me, my child, and receive the grace that I offer. In fact, commentator Dan Doriani observes the word come near in this passage means more than repentance. He says James is offering a far-reaching promise, a promise that other gods do not make, that when we draw near to God, he also comes near to us. He also comes near to us. Amazing. And then just when you thought this passage was going to end, James ramps up his language again. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That is such an un-American concept. Walt Disney would be so mad at this verse because we're left saying, whoa, James, this is harsh. What about the happy ending? I just came near to God and now I have to grieve, mourn, and wail. What is he saying? James is saying dysfunctional relationships flow from dysfunctional hearts. Because we have been stained by worldly wisdom. Our tongues have dispensed poisonous speech. We have shown favoritism against the poor. We are double-minded. We are prideful. And we live for ourselves. And our lives do not display the grace we receive through Jesus. Don't you see? That James is calling us to grieve over our sins. To mourn and wail over our selfishness. Because our laughter has too often been at the expense of others. So stop, he says. Don't laugh. Cry. Whatever joy you thought you had may have turned to gloom because you realize just how far away from God you were. James is calling the church to repent, to weep over their grievous sins and turn back to God. And when they do, destructive conflicts cease. Look at how he finishes in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so James returns to that theme of pride and humility. It is the humble who will be lifted up. Why? Because they are the ones who will come near to God. And why will they come near to God? Because they are the ones who will truly repent of their sins. Prideful people don't repent of their sins because that would cause them to deal with their shame. 
It will cause them to admit they are wrong. It will cause them to say thank you for what God has done. And pride keeps us away from there. It causes us to be constantly in conflict with others. And don't you see, prideful people will always, always, always be fighting the dragon because they can never find the sword to defeat him. And so you might be asking yourself, how do we kill the dragon? And the answer is we can't. But there was one who could. And from the first time he entered our world, the dragon was trying to thwart his plan. You see, the way to kill the dragon is to embrace the one who could kill him. The way to kill the dragon is to stand behind our champion who resisted the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. The way to kill the dragon is to fix our eyes on the one who submitted himself to the Father's plan and was whipped, beaten, and died on a cross. The way to kill the dragon is to run to the one who rose from the dead, the one who tore the veil so the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, could dwell in our hearts. See, the sword that killed the dragon was the cross on which our Savior died. And the only way to be delivered is to embrace the deliverer and humbly repent of our selfishness and pride. And we can come near to God only because Jesus came near to us. Jesus is the one who slayed the dragon for us. Jesus made peace with God for us on the cross, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. The prince of peace himself came in the flesh, died for his enemies so that we could be peacemakers who put an end to destructive conflict. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Dysfunctional relationships flow from our dysfunctional hearts. And don't you see that the solution to fights and quarrels is not ultimately to develop practical steps to conflict, although that may help, but the solution to fights and quarrels in our homes, in our churches, is to humbly repent of our selfish desires, run to the cross, and submit to God as we reorder our hearts under his authority. Here's the truth, friends. It is our dysfunctional, if, if there are dysfunctional fights and quarrels happening in our homes and in the church, we need to go home and look in the mirror and ask, how is my heart dysfunctional? Because fighting the dragon is not about finding the 10 steps toward better conflict resolution. It's not about finding a practical guide to interpersonal relationships. No, our problem is not our practical approach. Our problem is with our hearts. We need the blood of Jesus to wash us clean and transform our hearts so we become more like him. We need to embrace repentance. Worship team, would you come as they close us out with one more song? And as they come, I would invite you just to imagine what would happen if we became a church filled with repentant hearts. Imagine if the church became a safe place to repent. Just imagine. I think it would be marked by the wisdom from above. Where purity, where peace-loving and submissive hearts are open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. The dragon would be dead as our Savior stands in victory over him. And the only way to truly kill the enemy within is to run to the cross Humbly fall on our knees and cry out like the prophet Isaiah, unclean, unclean. 
We are a people who are unclean. And there, at that place, God says, I will give you more grace. Amen? Can I pray for us?